Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's December 16th, 1964, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. At the opening of the Hideaway Club in London's West End on this night in 1964, there was one table that was conspicuously empty, the one that had been booked by two identical twins, Ronnie and Reggie, better known as the notorious Cray twins who terrorised London throughout the early half of the 1960s. This was their rather tame opening gambit in what was to be a war of intimidation against the manager of the club, a baronet's son called Hugh McCowan, who had rather unwisely turned down their offer to provide protection to the club. Although it's worth noting that both Crays would go on to maintain that they did not do any intimidating, which is a funny thing for them to claim because they did plenty of intimidating elsewhere. Well, it would be a funny thing to, for them to claim if the context was different to a trial in which they were being asked <laughs> if they committed a crime to which their answer was not guilty. So they had a very strong motivation for claiming not to have done this. Even in their, in, even in their various interviews and memoirs later in life, they continually insisted that they never did any intimidating of Hugh McCowan at all. <laughs> OK, well, let's wind back a bit. So the location of this nightclub was 16 Gerrard Street in Soho, which is now part of Chinatown. So it's now a Chinese restaurant. Um, And there is a plaque on the outside of the building, but the plaque is to commemorate the site's former role as the site of the Mont Blanc restaurant. Uh, It says, where writers, including Belloc, Chesterton, Conrad and Goldsworthy, met regularly in the early years of the 20th century, which is a significant literary gathering. D.H. Lawrence used to turn up there as well. But even so, it's kind of amazing that it has this really important chapter, this Mm. building as well, in London gangland history, that the Crays owned it for a while. The Gangster Association happened initially because it had been co-owned by Mad Frankie Fraser. It was called Bonsoir then. He set fire to it and claimed the insurance money because he couldn't make enough money out of it as a nightclub. Warning bells for future owners. <laughs> yes, yeah. You would, you'd question your investment, wouldn't you, if you weren't yeah. the craze. And at this stage, Hugh McGowan, who was a wealthy baronet's son, he had bought into this venture and been approached by the Cray twins who suggested that it might be a good idea if they went into business with him and vice versa. We can set fire to things. Yeah, we can do anything that the previous guy can do, only only more terrifying. Um, Yeah, they met in a pub, and the Cray brothers suggested that they should be put in charge of security. They said, uh, when we go into business with people, we provide protection, we'll give you some gazers on the door. Uncanny. (laughs) That's cockney. Thank you for the footnote there, Rebecca. Just in case anyone was wondering, what is that Hong Kong accent he's doing? doing? And they suggested a 25% profit share of takings in return for providing the security. They then had a second meeting where they upped their offer, in inverted commas, to 50%. 
Mm. They said, we've been, we've been thinking about nudge nudge. We've been thinking about what you've been saying. We think it really would be better if you gave us half of your profits. <laughs> now, McCown declined that one, but realised that the best way to report them for trying to extort money from him would be to actually accept a future offer. They compromised on 20%, but he intended to report them to the police for the crime of demanding money with menaces. Yeah, and all of these kind of cheap and cheerful gangland books that you can buy at the airport, there's a lot of them that seem to express surprise at, you know, what on earth was he thinking, like saying he agreed to their face and then going to the police. And I'm like, well, probably because if Ronnie and Reggie Cray are literally sitting there looking at you saying, what do you think of our offer? You're not going to be like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to walk out. Please don't slash me or anything like that. (laughs) And also, once you get into a relationship like that, you know, this is you being shaken down in perpetuity. And in fact, the Cray brothers had already owned a nightclub called Esmeralda's Barn in Knightsbridge, and they had been sold that by the previous landlord, Peter Rachman. But he had been approached by them in similar circumstances where they said, how about we go into a relationship with one another? And he said, actually, why don't I sell it to you for a thousand pounds? I thought this was an amazing detail that that was kind of the going rate for for um, for a whole premises in uh, I in don't know if that's weird. With the gangster discount, though. Maybe yeah. that's with the gangster <laughs> discount. Maybe that's what's going on the there. The gangster discount has a role to play in the trial that came later as well, when the jury <laughs> right. were all intimidated to uh, find them not guilty. Yes. But actually, already at this stage, this was where the craze had started to kind of build their reputation. Yes. As, as not just gangsters, but glamorous gangsters. You know, this the, this is where they became acquaintances with Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland, and they were photographed by David Bailey. So this was sort of the start of the real myth of the Cray twins that then took off from there. And it, it's classic MO, isn't it, uh, of any kind of mobster, really, to behave as they did on this day when the club opened. Because as you say, they'd booked this table, didn't show up. Silence from the Crays for the first two days of the nightclub. Then on the Monday night, their business associate... Mad Teddy Smith, the clue's in the name, (laughs) turns up drunk, breaks two neon signs behind the bar before being thrown out on the street. And that is then the leverage that the craze went back to McCown and said, oh, we've been hearing all sorts of things. I'm doing my accent again. (laughs) Hearing all sorts of things about what's been going down at your club. We could stop that kind of caper. Um, And of course, they'd caused it. And that's, that's the MO, like cause trouble, then turn up and offer protection in return for exploitation. And it's an example of them trying to racketeer not another gangster, but in this case, as Rebecca was saying, the son of a baron, a member of the British aristocracy. It was quite flagrant. Yeah, and the key phrase in the encounter with Mad Teddy Smith was that as he was being, you know, escorted out of the premises, he was shouting, you know who my friends are. But when this was put to the craze, they said, we don't really have anything to do with him anymore. You can't believe a word Mad Teddy Smith says he's mad. You know, they said that that was not orchestrated on their part. That was just drunk gangster shooting his mouth off or rather than threat. I don't know why I've sort of taken on the role of defender of the craze. <laughs> <laughs> well... The people who were defending the craze uh, managed to convince the jury that at least the evidence was not decisive um, Mm. because the jury were unable to come to a verdict. And then there was a subsequent retrial, but the craze hired a private detective to go digging around into McCown's history. Now, McCown was openly homosexual, but that was illegal. And he had in his history what they called then sodomy and whatever they called solicitation. He had a conviction for basically cruising. So they managed to use that against him as a threat. Like, he was managed to be portrayed as an untrustworthy character because he, (laughs) not the craze, he (laughs) had a criminal conviction against his name. 
Well, this was the thing that the case fell apart in the end on the basis that there was really only one witness for the prosecution, and that was McCowan. And that's how the craze got away with things for so long. You know, they murdered people in plain sight. They famously shot dead George Cornell, who was a gangster from the south of London in The Blind Beggar, and then stabbed to death Jack the Hat McVitie. But in both of those cases, it had been very hard to get witnesses to come forth because the craze were the craze. And I think this was another case of that, that, you know, with McGowan trying to lead these charges against the Cray twins, he just had very little to go on. And consequently, the prosecution had very little to go on as well. Yeah, and I think that really explains why at this time, the Crays were still seen primarily as club owners in a weird way. Like that was how they were portrayed in the press. You know, there was a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink about, you know, their exploits. It was like photo of them boxing. Yeah. Next to story about a new nightclub that's opening. Like the innuendo is yeah. <laughs> not that subtle, is it? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't them and a sawn off, but I mean, you know, the hint's there. <laughs> Well, it, it was particularly encouraged by Reggie, who idolised uh, gangster movie stars like George Raft, who was one of the visitors to Esmeralda's barn. And he wanted to model himself on those kind of celebrity mob- mobsters, you know, where everyone was sort of knew there was something up, but you, were, you weren't going to hear any reports in the press about them, you know, like slitting somebody's throat. It was all glamour and glitz. It wasn't until then, the later half of the 60s, when you had the murders of Cornell and Jack the Hat McVitie, that this sort of underbelly that had always been there burst through and people were kind of forced to reckon with the idea that they were actually personally very violent individuals they weren't just you know sitting in a glamorous leather padded office ordering hits they were holding people down and stabbing them yeah but they were both weren't they that was what was clever about the pr exercise they were friends of frank sinatra and barbara windsor and victor spinetti and they did own a nightclub by this point they got the lease from mccown and turned uh, what was the hideaway into el morocco kind of amusing that it's pretty much as the street undergoes its transition into Chinatown, they decide to theme it after Africa. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, they were by that point in the eyes of the press and they were national press figures now because of this trial, nightclub owners, and they were gangsters. It like didn't harm them. It helped them. Well, eventually they did go to prison for the crimes related to both Jack the Hat and George Cornell. But At this stage, you'd sort of expect for them to start drifting into obscurity. But it was here that they began continuing to build their reputation. Mm. And now we've got so many films and documentary. There have been more than 50 books about the craze. There's a weekly tour of their old stamping ground that starts at the Blind Beggar Pub in Whitechapel. And, you know, their coshes and knuckle dusters are on display. It was because as soon as they got to prison, they continued their work on their own biography, which was written by a guy called John Pearson, who was a journalist who had just written a quite well-regarded biography of Ian Fleming. Although, interestingly, their their first choice had been Truman Capote. Wow. (laughs) Who uh, turned down their commission and said, uh, thank you, but no thank you. How did they come up with that? Just just because he'd written In Cold Blood? Yeah, they were like that again. It was just after In Cold Blood. (laughs) And Capote was like, I don't fancy either of you, so I'm going to have to turn that down. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow. It's so bizarre to think that there must have been a day on the set where they said, would you be interested in doing the voice for these characters? Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 